Welcome to the Economics Design Podcast. I'm Kiefer Zhang, and today I'm joined by the chief economist at the Citadel, who goes by the pseudonym Heimdall. They're building a fully on-chain, space-themed game, and it's meant to last forever. Heimdall, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Kiefer. I really appreciate it. Awesome. So to kick things off, uh, can you start by giving a little bit of background about yourself and how you ended up uh, getting into this situation? Well, uh, that's a long story. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think it maybe serves uh, the story to start all the way back. Uh, I really started playing video games when I was about six years old. Uh, my uncle was kind of a computer geek. He's actually, my whole family is from Europe. Uh, and so he had a Windows 95 computer and uh, he let me play Doom and Wolfenstein uh, when I was a six-year-old. <laughs> and I kind of got hooked there. Uh, but I kind of progressed uh, throughout the years. I went to like Age of Empires, and then I settled on the Blizzard games for a while. Uh, Warcraft 3 was really a, a, a critical moment, I would say, just in terms of the modding community, and I even was making my own custom maps back then. Uh, but the biggest game for me, and all of us uh, co-founders at the Citadel have our 10,000-hour games. Uh, Fleet, our Jack, you go, uh, is, <laughs> he goes by. Uh, you know, EVE Online was his game. Uh, for me, it was Diablo 2. Uh, that's where I really experienced uh, an in-game economy uh, that was really a barter economy. It, was, it wasn't really so much a real economy, but it, it functioned well, you know. People valued these things a lot, so much that, you know, think items were selling for hundreds of dollars on, you know, the black markets. Uh, but yeah, from there I progressed and uh, kind of did a lot of different jobs and I uh, got into crypto in 2017. Uh, bought VeChain. I don't know if you know VeChain. I'm aware of it. Yeah, it was my big holding. I, I basically put everything I had uh, for about four years into that. And then uh, 2021 comes around. Uh, I saw an Alex Becker video of all people. Uh, NFTs and gaming. I was pretty much sold immediately. I, I went all in. You know, I sold all my VeChain. I bought NFTs. I bought Neo Tokyo Citizen. Uh, and around that time, Wolf Game uh, came around. And uh, Wolf Game was really something, it wasn't a particularly crazily good game, but it was highly interesting. You know, it was, you know, fully on-chain. Uh, it was this com kind of competitive risk-based game where people were sticking and trying to steal tokens and, you know, take sheeps and things like that. And uh, I became really entranced with that. And... Uh, I saw quickly that the game ended actually uh, partly due to some of our co-founders. They found the wool bug where people will be able to basically stake and unstake sheep and claim an infinite amount of wool. And so the game got paused, but then that launched a bunch of derivatives, which I bought into immediately. Uh, and I feel like people don't really talk about it, but it was essentially a bunch of economic experiments run at like a maximal speed. You know, you got to see Weimar type inflation happen in real time. And that's something a lot of economists talk about, like they wish they could model uh, economies and do these experiments live with real people. Well, we got to do that. Everybody that was in those games was part of an experiment. And uh, I learned a lot going through that experience and losing some money myself. Uh, <laughs> but uh, from there, I, you know, I kind of started thinking about why, why are these not working? And so I came up with my own theories, uh, and around that time I, I ran into the Citadel on Discord, or on Twitter actually, I found them. 
And uh, I joined the community uh, immediately, uh, and I tried to get whitelist and grind for a little bit, uh, but didn't really work out. So I came up with this idea to to write an economic document uh, explaining my theories on you know how we could fix these on-chain game economies, and uh, the team uh, resonated with it. They loved you know some of my ideas and they ended up bringing me on the team and ever since then about two years now i've been working on the citadel uh i've i only handle the economy so for about two years i've been focused solely on researching blockchain economies uh traditional economies um you know i've read probably 30 to 40 economics books uh in that period uh over 100 research papers uh countless podcasts youtube videos uh, and so yeah, that's how I ended up here. I love that journey, uh, especially in just going into a, uh, a what's going to be a very kind of decentralized system and showing that you're someone who can add value and then that being recognized and being pulled into the team there. I uh, also love the point on um, how some of these uh, on-chain games or experiments can provide a lot of value for economists because you have the data availability, you have everything is uh, there on chain. You also have that real financial stake behind the situation um, that uh, shows what do people do when there is real money on the line, not just in some theoretical survey based uh, type of um, type of data there. So right. or or like some closed loop, you know, model that they created for a research paper, which I mean, can work to show some things, but you really need that. Uh, the human input to really know if the system's going to work or if the model's going to work. And so, yeah, I think we're really, we're really lucky to be working in this space and to, to be able to do that. Absolutely. So Citadel has been in development for a, a couple of years already, but by the time that this podcast is going to air, you'll have announced the details of a big Citadel 2.0 um, that I'm personally really curious about. And so could you give a little bit of background on the original vision for uh, what Citadel is and then also where the project is going now? Yeah, uh, so Citadel 1.0, as we've been calling it lately, <laughs> was really a product of its its time. Uh, like I said, uh, some of our co-founders, Fleet and Architect, uh, they found the Wolf Game bug and uh, they basically were thinking, okay, well, you know, we're pretty good programmers and, you know, we played a lot of games and uh, we think we can do something better here with the similar framework. And so it's almost, it almost was like a wolf game S game, uh, wolf game like game where we had these miners and marauders, wolves and sheeps. Uh, but we decided, or they decided, you know, they want to make it a DAO, right? So we won't dive into it right now, but uh, DAO really does help contain value in the economy mm -hmm. uh outside of just the the governance aspect there's also another you know uh, uh economic aspect to governance that helps retain value in the economy um but yeah so basically they they were going to add a DAO. they're also we're going to have a fully 2d uh a 2d fully on-chain map uh we we're going to have randomized resource nodes that spawn across the map based on an evolutionary algorithm uh and, uh, you know, a bunch of other additions that uh, basically built on the Wolf Game concept. Now, Citadel 2.0, uh, basically a few months ago we played that game and we decided it wasn't as, wasn't exactly what we wanted. It was, it was interesting, 
And the economic aspects were interesting, but it wasn't really a, as you, as I hate to say, a fun game, but fun. Uh, it was more of an it was more of an idle game. Like you sit around, you wait for your ship to get to the asteroid belt, and then you wait to claim, you know, uh, the ore that you mined, and then you try to dodge the marauders from, you know, blowing your ship up, and then you go back to the station and do your things. Citadel 2.0 uh, is going to be fully on chain. 3D game with a 3D map and 3D ships and actual combat, uh, near real-time combat. Uh, more like EVE. If you ever played EVE Online, uh, basically what we're going for is fully on-chain EVE Online uh, with governance built into the framework of the game. Um, and yeah. I love that vision and uh, excited to see uh, what, you, what you guys are cooking up at that. Um, and so it's in part of that transition from Citadel 1.0 to, to 2.0, I saw that you guys recently announced a funding round and you, you raised those funds in uh, what I'd say is a rather unusual way. Um, I'd love if you could talk a bit about, uh, about that round and some of the implications of that. Yeah, you know, raising funds was always kind of like a, a sticky question for us. Uh, we were vehemently against it from the beginning because we're making a DAO and, you know, VCs uh, tend to, you know, sell their tokens onto the player base and it just didn't feel like a very good way to go about things. Uh, we did run into some VCs that we liked. Uh, uh, over time, we became friends with them, uh, the guys at 1KX, namely Terry and Peter. Um, and we read a lot of their articles and they were, they were actually thinking about things the same way as us and so we were thinking well what if we could make a funding structure that worked for us and worked for the vcs but also most importantly it was good for the community mm -hmm. um so we came up with a, a unique design where we took funding into an equity entity and that equity entity was a service provider for the dow so when we launched the game the dow will basically sign a service contract with us if they choose to, uh, which would provide us with 15% of the governance tokens from the Mint and from our weekly auctions, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, we decided on that number because we didn't want to take too much to the point where we're, we're risking the centralization of the project, uh, but also too little to where our value alignment would not be as strong as it could be. Uh, so we kind of settle on this 15% number, which is actually, I think, similar to Ethereum's original uh, distribution and uh, yeah so basically all the currency that's in the game uh, that there will be no currency given to VCs or us it will only be player generated in the game uh, the only thing that we'll receive is the governance asset uh, for payment for services uh, now those governance assets get locked up for four years then they get distributed over time to our equity entity um, so there's no potential for players uh, being sold onto, essentially, uh, which creates that sort of downward sell pressure you see with a lot of uh, value accrual tokens and stuff like that uh, that create a lot of economic problems that people basically have to like figure out how can we create enough demand to uh, get past this downward sell pressure from these you know uh, lockup token releases and stuff like that. Yeah, I love that you found a way to uh, really build the game that you want to build, or at least 
have the capability to move in that direction and while not having to compromise on that that strong uh, vision that you have on, on decentralization. So I'm really glad that you're able to kind of innovate and find a way that worked there and hope that's something that uh, maybe other other teams can also think about as, as a potential route forward to get more of these interesting types of setups. Yeah, yeah so, I, I, I really do. I really do think that uh, the... I do think that the tokenomics kind of pie chart style uh, fundraising uh, will not be the method going forward. Um, so hopefully, you know, uh, people will look at this structure and, and start to th maybe think about a better structure or maybe use something similar that we did uh, because the, your players are everything when it comes to game. And you don't want to monetize them directly. I think you, in the a sort of decentralized game, you want to work with them and protect them. You know, you don't. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't want to look at them like a customer, but more like you're part of the community. And how can we align our values so that everybody is doing well at the same time? You know. Uh, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So I want to transition a little bit more over to a, a really great article that, that you wrote that should be out by the time this airs um, with the overall vision of um, covering how to design an open game economy and also really diving into uh, the how to design a currency and a currency really in the true sense of the word. Um, so I'd love if you can share a bit on the background of that paper and the overall thesis. Yeah, the the article kind of stemmed from a period of time. I think like late 2022, early 2023. I was seeing, you know, just basically not a lot of innovation in the space. Uh, a lot of people copying previous designs, and and not really, you know, a lot of the token I was by chart and value accrual token, this and that. And uh, I, I was kind of, I I hate to say it, but I was a little frustrated, uh, and so. I decided to start writing this thing. I didn't know it was going to take me about six months uh, and and months of revisions and uh, input from a lot of different individuals. Uh, but essentially, the crux of the article is how can we create an economy that's intrinsically valuable and has a relatively stable medium of exchange currency? Uh, and so the basis for that is designing the entire economy around a game treasury uh, where that uh, accumulates uh, assets or Ethereum or whatever it may be, stable coins. Um, and then using that to uh, impart value on the rest of the ecosystem assets. So the in-game assets, the resources, the let's say ships in our case. Um, and then further having relatively stable currency allows for uh, more trade to occur, you know, higher velocity trade. Uh, everything just works better when you have a relatively stable currency. Um, and then further in the in the article, I make a lot of uh, parallels between an open blockchain economy and a developing country. Uh, actually, I'm not, I'm not the first person to compare uh, like an MMO type economy to a developing country, Castronova. Uh, he did that in the late 90s in his piece on EverQuest, which is an amazing read. I highly recommend Great it. Great paper. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that that's that's the general gist of it, is intrinsic value, relatively stable currency, and then making the comparisons to developing countries and how we can use those comparisons 
to figure out what we're kind of missing in the equation of economic value in these these ecosystems. Yeah, I, I fully agree with thinking about these uh, these economies as uh, as countries. Um, and I think today we have a lot of teams that are weighing about or considering the idea of implementing a currency, but they're thinking um, about implementing it with where we're at current, currently when we think about Web3 games. And often a lot of these don't have a ton of uh, perhaps trade that's natively within the experience um, and lack a bit of the economic complexity that might be required to, to support a, a currency and maybe don't kind of hit the point of, of being a nation. And that's, that's maybe where we're at now. But um, I, I know you have this, this vision and you're building something interesting for the future. Um, so you have any, any thoughts about kind of what the uh, complexity of future game, uh, game economies will look like that you're envisioning? Um, and also what type of games might actually need um, or benefit from at least having their own um, stable currency versus say using something separate like the dollar? The way I like to look at it right now is that I feel like uh, right now we have a bunch of these uh, blockchain projects and in my opinion, it's it's like a bunch of countries back in like the six, let's say the 1600s or maybe even 1500s. When the first country became industrially advanced, you know, it, it shot ahead of everyone, right? It, it's such a powerful change uh, that basically they, they couldn't even compete. It, it'd be like uh, this the conquistadors arriving in South America, you know, and the, and the natives there, they, they were like, oh, we don't know what to do against guns and germs and, you know, steel and all these things, right? Uh, another great book I read a long time ago. But um, the future complexity of economies, it's going to be something like, you know, you're, you're almost going to have to manage the economy like a central bank. You know, you're going to have to think about a lot of, of different things. Uh, you're going to have to have economic levers that can be easily adjusted. I know a lot of, you know, traditional MMOs and stuff have economic levers, but uh, it, it almost feels like there's no central lever. You got to change all these different faucets. You got to change all these different sinks and you kind of finesse the balance. Whereas you're going to want to have something that that's centrally located, sort of like changing the interest rates, you know, that the Fed does. Uh, I'm not saying that's a great system, but um, and and further with you know blockchain, uh, we can almost have self-maintaining systems. You know, you can have automated systems. You can have something that changes based on another value. Um, and so I, I think it's important to think about how can we set the economy up so that there's minimal as minimal input from the economist standpoint to where the the systems are almost self-maintaining you know the stability of the system the value accrual of the system uh the balance of the system all those things yeah that's really interesting because that that sort of brings up the uh how centralized you want to go in a decentralized system for making adjustments to a live economy uh and so there because there's the discussion of um for uh, autonomous worlds, do you want to make them immutable? Like, do you want to set the economic systems in stone, uh, perhaps, or do you want to leave capability to change them? Because that, uh, that might go away from kind of the, the idea of immutability. So where do you stand there in terms of like, how much do you leave in the capability to 
make adjustments to the economy and then who should be making those adjustments and, and sort of sound like you're maybe leaning a little bit more towards a lot of it being automated. From the outset, I would say, yeah, you, you almost want to have these pillars that are sort of automated from the start and, and, uh, basically they can function well in a broad set of circumstances, you know, so they're, they're not, they're very robust. Uh, they should be able to adjust dynamically based on player input. Um, and so, yeah, you want to set those up as much as you can, uh, pre-launch, obviously we're a DAO, so any changes that are made uh, to those values or anything that we set up uh, before launch needs to be, be changed via proposal. Of course, we've talked about organizing the Citadel in, in a document we wrote, and uh, eventually we see like several working groups. Maybe there's an econo economist working group uh, where these decisions can be made sort of like, uh, uh, you know, the heads of the different uh, Federal Reserve branches. You could, you could think of it kind of like that where they all get around and then they talk about what they should do. Uh, and then maybe they have some limited power to change certain values in the economy uh, faster than a proposal because proposal can take like seven days, uh, which is not the speed at which you probably need to adjust a game economy. Um, but yeah, we, we actually advocate for uh, mutable contracts. So we, our, our design is fully upgradable and uh, all the contracts are held by the DAO. Um, so yeah, we lean towards fully mutable versus the immutable, you know, forking type uh, game design that I think most on-chain games are going for. I, I generally would tend to agree with you on leaning a little bit more towards mutability and being able to uh, make adjustments to the system because uh, with a lot of these complex economies, there very likely will be things that, that you need to, uh, to make adjustments for. But yeah, then thinking about even just the governance part of how that works, that's definitely not an easy task. Um, so a lot, a lot of work to be done on that. Um, and so uh, you mentioned kind of like a, a lot of these different components of how some of these adjustments might happen. Uh, so I'm curious um, what you see to be the fundamental components for creating a currency and, and maintaining that currency um, in uh, the game economy. Yeah, uh, so in an article, I I talk about what a competitive currency is, and uh, this is a term that I think originated back in like the 80s or 90s, uh, but essentially in the real world, uh, we have a system of competing currencies just like you might see on Uniswap, uh, right? Uh, you know, floating exchange rates, and you know, people are speculating on Forex uh, conversion rates and stuff like that. It's, it's very similar to the Web3 space. Uh, the difference is that there are no competitive currencies currently, except for maybe Ethereum and uh, stablecoins, uh, because what you see here is that people earn a token in game, and then they basically convert it immediately into Ether or stablecoin. Maybe they'll hold it if they think that there's some utility they're going to use soon or some you know speculative mint coming up, but majority of the time people are looking to take profits out of that currency because it's not safe, right? It's volatile. They don't know where it's going to go. They don't know how much it's inflating. It's not very transparent. Uh, furthermore, it's not a very useful token. You can only use it in that game. Um, so I kind of uh, noted five different aspects of what I think will be a competitive currency in the blockchain space. Uh, the first one is relative stability. 
relative stability doesn't mean that it's perfect stability, right? You're not uh, you're not setting a hard peg. You're not setting a, a gold standard, right? You're allowing the the currency to move within a certain range of prices that you you deem to be a reasonable amount of volatility. Now, this enforcing that range creates confidence in it, right? So, if your blockchain project is uh, backing that floating range, then people will be more confident it's going to stay in that range. And economics is all about confidence. Uh, now, you have to choose what you want to be relatively stable in terms of, which I would suggest Ethereum, but we can talk about that a little bit later. Uh, the second thing uh, would be deep liquidity. Obviously, everybody knows liquidity is everything in this space. Um, what is deep liquidity? Uh, basically, it's the amount where somebody can sell a large amount of the token and the price barely moves, right? So I know that's not a great definition, uh, but we, we'll kind of figure that out as we go along. What's what's the right amount of liquidity to have? So the third thing is transparent distribution. It's a little difficult to define, but essentially what I'm saying here is that you shouldn't be distributing currency before the game is live. You shouldn't be selling currency to investors. Your currency should only be generated in the game world. Uh, this makes it a fair and equitable distribution. It's, it's understandable. People know where the currency is coming from. They don't have to worry about token unlocks. It's very transparent, right? The, you play the game, you earn the currency. That's the only place that the currency is coming from. People can track that over time and they can understand how currency is being distributed in the game. Uh, another aspect of a competitive currency would be broad acceptance. The best way I can describe this is that if you were to pay somebody that doesn't even play in your game ecosystem with that currency, they'd be fine to hold it. They would think, oh, well, this currency is relatively stable against ETH. I don't need to convert it into ETH, right? Uh, a good example might be, you know, when you go to Mexico, you can go anywhere. You can pay with dollars. And the guy is not running out of his store to go convert his dollars into pesos. In fact, he might even keep the dollars for a long time because the dollar is probably less inflationary than a peso. Um, so that's what I say when I say broad acceptance. Somebody outside the ecosystem might even be willing to be paid in this currency. That's how good it is. Uh, doesn't exist, right? Uh, hard to imagine. Uh, but yeah, and the, the fifth and final component, I will say, uh, which I haven't put in the article yet, but I just thought about the other day, is that all of these things really hinge on a high velocity economy. If you, the turnover of money in the economy is not quick, it's not fast, you won't be generating fees for liquidity providers, and people will be less incentivized to provide liquidity for your token. So uh, designing your economy in such a way that people are trading a lot, uh, consuming a lot, uh, money is moving around uh that's a very critical aspect i think to designing a good a good currency yeah fully agree on all of those points um and i'll also add on the uh not distributing to investors uh, it's not even just the component around centralization of maybe giving too much to to a certain entity or that they might sell but it's even just what expectations does that create or what limitations does that that put on you if you have sold it to an investor where in, inherently their expectation is that the price of this asset is is going to be going up. And that is um, quite problematic when you're thinking about designing a currency when um, you needed to, to have uh, at least some level of stability within a range. And so 
having any uh, investor sale and having any sort of expectation around those lines, teams that have done that have already made a pretty critical mistake. There's also a hint of unfairness there, right? And uh, actually a really good book uh, by Robert Schiller called Animal Spirits. He talks about fairness in the economy. Uh, fairness is like a, a critical aspect of the economy. This, the, the social view of your currency, I think if you're distributing currency to people outside of the economy that did nothing really to gain it except for invest money in the project, I guess, uh, your players will, will view it as unfair. Uh, even maybe even subconsciously, and uh, that's not a good. It's not a good way to start an economy, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so we talked a little bit about uh, using ETH as a as sort of the um, focal point for stability uh, in your economy, and uh, so I'm curious, uh, why does a crypto native game? Um, need a crypto related anchor and why is that important well if your aim is to build a decentralized game that's you know fully on chain uh relying on an asset let's say you were to choose stablecoin instead such as USC, usdc you know then you're relying on a centralized intermediary and then you become exposed to the, the risk that they uh could have a bank run let's say like they did uh, a few months back you know, where the peg was down 15%. Uh, I know that was a, a little bit of a frightening moment for us. Because <laughs> uh, that was our investment was in USDC. So um, you're exposed to that risk, but then also you're losing out on any potential upside network network effects of the, the blockchain that you're building on. You know, so if you're building a project on Ethereum, I think it makes much more sense to use ethereum as the stabilizing asset of your economy now i know ethereum is not a, a it's a volatile asset still it's still a young uh store of value let's say um but it's been its value has been proven and it, it's only the beginning uh so many think about the thousands of projects that are building on ethereum right now the network effects that that will have in the next five years will be insane and so what you're really what you're really hedging with a stablecoin is you, you're going to miss out on all that potential upside and your entire ecosystem is going to miss out on that upside and your players are going to miss out on the upside. So sure, stablecoin is perfectly stable and, you know, against the dollar, which who knows where that's going, but uh, really you're missing out on a lot if you don't stabilize against Eve. Okay, that makes sense. It, it does make me think about the the risk preferences of the users that you have in terms of kind of trying to apply this to maybe other games that might be targeting a broader audience. Uh, say like they're really trying to bring in uh, more a much more Web two crowd. Do you think the situation would change then? You would might want to go uh, to in a more maybe peg to a, a fiat currency stablecoin um, if you want to be uh, targeting people with. Uh, these more conservative risk preferences? <laughs> we could also cut this question if you want. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a good question. Uh, it's a hard question to answer for me myself because I, I'm such a biased uh, towards Ethereum. But 
you could. Uh, I, I just feel like you're going to be uncompetitive in the future. Um, you, like I said, you're missing out on a, a certain network effect, a certain value accrual that everybody who jumps on the ETH bandwagon is going to share in. And, and so you actually uh, almost get a, an accelerating value accrual effect because the more projects that use, let's say, an ETH-stabilized ecosystem, they uh, retain more ETH in their treasuries, and that reduces the amount of circulating ETH, which then, you know, increases, could increase the value of the underlying, right, based on scarcity uh, in the market. So you could become uncompetitive using a stable coin. I'm not going to say it's not possible, but um, really the only thing the only downside to using ETH is that maybe ETH goes down, right? But the lower the price of Ethereum, the potentially the more that you could accrue to your treasury, right? Because people would be more willing to spend it. There might be more trading of the assets, more royalties generated. Uh, you know, the inflows would probably increase to the treasury and then you just wait for the next upswing. So uh, I, I'm not going to say that you couldn't stabilize against, uh, you know, a traditional asset like the dollar uh, and make that work. But it would not be my preference. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd probably start from thinking about what are, uh, for the majority of your, your users, what what are the what's their baseline? What do they see as their uh, kind of numerator currency? Um, and then that that can be a good starting point for figuring out like what what should that stability uh, be based upon? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, and that's true. I mean, it, it really is what your target user base is. For us, we're going for crypto-native, you know, hardcore uh, blockchain users. Obviously, we're a fully on-chain game, so we're not going to be going for mobile users or anything like that. So, yeah, it really is what your target user base is. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense for you guys. Um, and so then just kind of continuing on the topic of stability, um, why is currency stability important in both crypto economies and regular economies? So, well, in terms of crypto economies, I think uh, st stability is important. First of all, uh, like I said, we, this doesn't really exist yet. At a, you know, an ecosystem created currency that's part of a game that's relatively stable versus another asset, it doesn't really exist. Uh, but if you think about it, if you can maintain sort of an, a relative stability in asset correlation to another asset such as Ethereum, uh, then you reduce the chances of impermanent loss. Impermanent loss is kind of a heady term that I think a lot of people don't understand. But uh, essentially, when a, a, this might be diving too deep, but when you provide liquidity to a token, uh, you can get an impermanent loss when the tokens change in price too much to relative to each other. Uh, and so you could be stuck with more of one token or stuck with more of another token. Uh, but if they're relatively stable, there's less impermanent loss, maybe even very little. Uh, and therefore, you are just generating the fees uh, with no upside or downside and impermanent loss, right? Um, so... It, in combination with velocity, you're generating a lot of fees for providing liquidity. Um, the less impermanent loss, the more people are going to want to provide liquidity to your token. Um, and the more liquidity accrues, the deeper liquidity, more competitive the currency. Um, 
So stability can kind of have a uh, like a virtuous cycle of liquidity accrual, um, at least in in theory. Um, in terms of a, a real economy, I think we know why crisis stability is important um, here. First of all, you don't want your citizenry to have to worry about what the price of their what their value of their money is going to be the day after or in a week. You know then. It's not a it's not a, a good feeling to be worrying about your money devaluing, you know, to the point where you can have to spend ten thousand dollars to buy a loaf of bread, you know, in a month. Uh, so, stability is important for the market economy to function in general, just for trade to occur and people to know what their money's worth. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add on to that. No, I think I think that that makes a good amount of sense there. Um, yeah, you have to. Uh, yeah, taking it back to the kind of fundamentals, it has to be a good uh, unit of account and a good store of value, and that those kind of cover both directions of of price changing. Um, if uh, it's, I think it's kind of clear to a lot of people that if if something's not a good store of value, like it means that it's going to devalue um, over time, um, and the purchasing power is worse. Like that, that's. I think clear in a lot of people's minds why that's, that's not a good currency. People will not want to, to hold on to it. Um, I I think it's it's less clear kind of the the flip side of um, like why it's bad when the the currency price uh, rises uh, and essentially it's not a good unit of account anymore um, because it's difficult to make uh, long term agreements between people. Like if I I want to make an agreement for um, buying something that's going to be delivered. Six, six months from now, or even I'm, I'm just, uh, I want to hire someone. We want to figure out how, what should your annual salary be? If you don't have the ability to trust the, uh, kind of stability and the value of that currency that you're being paid in over time, then you're going to ask to be paid in a different currency. Um, and that, that kind of shows the, the fundamental weakness, um, of that. And, uh, and we definitely see with, uh, some of the, the cryptocurrencies that are, are trying to, become currencies, but have some of those concerns around, they have something that they have investors or there's value accrual components that are going to make the price kind of uh, go up. You have people who like, uh, who don't want to spend it. They want to hold it and have the, the price go up. And so you have issues around velocity of the currency and people actually using it for its uh, intended purpose. Right, right. And yeah, velocity, exactly. Uh, if the price is going up, people are going to tend to hoard hoard the asset and turn, instead of spend it, right? And uh, that that will contribute to a slowing down of your economy, essentially less trade occurring because people just want to hold the asset. They don't want to spend it. The whole point of a medium of exchange is people are willing to use it for trade and to spend it in the economy. Um, so, right. So it is kind of like a very fine edge you have to walk. You don't, you don't want uh, too much devaluation or inflation because... Uh, people are going to be just dumping your currency for something more stable, right? And you don't want too much appreciation uh, because people start hoarding it, right? Like gold or uh, Bitcoin, let's say. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, we, I don't know, everyone's always uh, scared about inflation, but if you, you hit deflation, that could be a whole lot worse. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um Thinking, thinking about some of the kind of comparisons between like physical nations and virtual nations, um, given that virtual nations don't have a captive audience in the same way that, that physical ones do, like it's a lot easier to leave uh, to leave a game than it is to change your citizenship. Um, 
how do you drive sustained intrinsic demand uh, for a currency that's specific to a virtual nation? Yeah, I mean, this 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 goes into a lot of the design discussion of, of games in general. Uh, I think a lot of people tend to dislike the gated access games and the prefer the, you know, anybody who can join anytime and leave anytime. Uh, but that might be kind of similar to a country where, you know, there's no citizen, uh, no citizenship. Uh, people can come to your country whenever they want and leave whenever they want. There's no borders and uh, no taxes are getting paid. Uh, no, nothing. Right. And how can a country survive like that? Right. Uh, because countries rely on taxes to drive demand for the currency. Um, and they were, they rely on having a population, right. Uh, to drive demand for the currency. So, uh, you almost have to start with how can I create borders for my game? Um, how can I create a, an area where these people live? These, these are my citizens or this, this is my population. Uh, and so, I mean, the best design that we could come up with that is for, you know, governance asset gated, uh, gated gameplay right so your governance asset is your citizenship uh, but it's also your access to the game it's your right to vote on what occurs with the game and with the treasury so so with this kind of creating sort of borders around your game right if your if your economy is doing well people are going to want to be a part of that right uh, you know, imagine having a very successful game and but you only allow a certain amount of people out and uh, so you have this sort of pent-up demand well, just sort of like how countries grow slowly in population, sustainable growth, right? Uh, you can kind of do the same thing with governance assets. So the way we design the economy is that new governance assets get released each week, and that uh, is how you expand your population of players. Uh, it's very slow. It's sustainable. Uh, you can adjust the economy as needed for that new influx of players. Uh, in fact, players can get integrated better because it's not just, you know, 10,000 new players coming all at once. It's maybe 300 new players a week. Uh, but you also have this very high demand for those new governance assets. And uh, the way we basically drive demand to that is that these governance assets can only be bid on in the native currency of the game or the developing country, as we say. The value of those governance assets is based on the intrinsic value of the game or the treasury. And so there is a certain lower bound value that those assets will demand in the native currency. And so what I kind of call this is a compulsory tax, right? People are compelled to bid on these assets because they have intrinsic value. Whereas in most games, there's sort of like an elective tax. Most things in a game can be considered a tax, like the 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 developer is saying, okay, if you spend this money here, then uh, you can get this certain utility in the economy. But it, really what it is, is just a tax. But it's a, you're allowed to choose whether you want to do it or not. And uh, so it can't really drive the money, right? Because it's elective. There's no compulsion to spend. Uh, and, and therefore, there's no underlying demand for the currency. Yeah, that's a, that's a great kind of differentiation there between elective and mandatory um, and i think that's something that a lot of web3 games have overlooked um, when designing the the faucets and sinks in their economies um, and i think it's and uh, because I, I think a lot of the time you have uh, some sinks that might not necessarily 
be attractive to all users. And if they're elective, then there, there can be situations where the developers might kind of underestimate how much the sync is actually going to be used, especially if they're um, underestimating the different types of player personas that are within their economy, because those different types of users are going to respond to different syncs in, in different ways. Probably the, the worst example of that is if you have um, a large group of very extractive uh, players, their, their sole motivation is to see how they can efficiently pull money out of uh, out of your economy and not put it back. Um, they're only going to be respond, uh, responding to syncs that they think are going to uh, be net profitable for them, which aren't really great syncs in the first place. Um, and so, uh, yeah, definitely thinking about what is uh, elective versus mandatory when you're thinking about what you can actually rely on as a currency sync is important. All right, and so I think there's maybe one more question that I, I want to get into, um, and that that's talking about why it's so important to uh, build this game on chain. Uh, because as as we discussed a little bit with uh, the discussion around fundraising, that's been a really strong vision um, that that you guys have held around um, having uh, having this game be on chain, and then also a component of decentralization as another. Kind of vision if uh, maybe you want to touch on that as well just uh yeah what are where do these ideals come from or are they important? yeah i mean building fully on chain i think is one of the most criti critical aspects of you know setting up this sort of uh open blockchain economy uh when you build your game fully on chain with you know fully on chain game state and logic and you know assets and all that all the things you basically uh, get the persistence of the Ethereum blockchain built in. And that's a huge deal, I would say, especially for things like property rights, uh, which I think a lot of people talk about property rights with NFTs, but I, if the, if the developer or the project creator is centralized, then you really don't have the, the, the property rights of the underlying assets. Uh, so that's, that's a critical reason why decentralization is important because Property rights are the foundation of all economic systems. Uh, it's a really, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's just, you gotta have it, you know? Mm -hmm. And if you're, if you're trying to create something that's a fully open economy, that's a, you know, a persistent world MMO, uh, you, you have to have this sort of property rights foundation uh, for people to truly be able to value things and to predict that they'll be able to own these things in the future. Um, yeah, I don't know if you were if you have any points on that. Yeah, and so that that again reminds me of the uh, the topic of discussing these worlds as virtual nations uh, because property rights. Uh, this discussion on property rights. This is not new to to games or NFTs. Uh, the a crucial importance of property rights is has been discussed for nations for quite a while in the the field of economics, and it's very well known that um, the um, the success of nations is uh, requires having those property rights as a building block because people are going to be less likely to be willing to invest into a country if they. Um, think that they could lose their assets or their investments at any time. Um, people are less likely to want to stay within that nation because they, they feel like there's this additional risk that's added to their capability to, to be prosperous within that nation. 
And it, and I think all those same arguments transfer really well to talking about um, these virtual nations. So I, I think there's really great points there about the, just how important those having those fundamental on-chain property rights are. Yeah. And you bring up a great point. Uh, that's essentially the, what they call a vicious cycle of poverty, where uh, people who live in a certain country are afraid to reinvest their savings in that country. And instead, they they take their money outside of that country. And, and so it becomes a, a self-replicating thing where if nobody's reinvesting money in the country, then the country becomes poor and poorer. And all those funds are going overseas or to another country. Um, and that, that can stem from property rights, but it can also stem from instability. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that's a, that's another thing is I think a lot of people talk about, uh, how do we onboard like the next billion people? Um, which is kind of a, a ridiculous statement, but also how, what makes people immigrate to a new country? You know, it's my, my dad, he came here from Yugoslavia, right? And, uh, they were about to go into a crazy war back in the late eighties and early nineties. Uh, my dad was looking for, he was in a communist country. He was looking for opportunity, right? Because he wanted to make money, wanted to make a living. And he was looking for stability because he didn't want to fight in a war. Um, and that's what we need. We need opportunity in our ecosystems for people to build things, to make money in the, or not make money, but, you know, play the game and do well and have fun and, you know, and then we need stability. Uh, people need to not be afraid that they're, they're going to have their assets taken away from them by a centralized developer. Uh, they, they need to know that their currency is not going to lose all its value in a week. Right. And, and that, I think that's really how you get more players uh, or more demand for your ecosystem or what have you. Uh, that's why people come to America, right? They come here for opportunity and stability. That's, uh, that's probably the best argument I've heard for, uh, for on chain games. I, I love that. And I, I think we can wrap it up with that. Um, this has been a really excellent discussion. I'm Bill. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks Kiefer. Appreciate it. Great.